Our scripture reading today is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, I will add my good morning as well. I, too, was ready for some vitamin D. Uh, my name is Andrew, if I haven't, if I haven't met you yet, and uh, I'm uh, one of the pastors here at uh, the Leewood campus, so uh, welcome. It's great to be here with you. If you have been uh, here with us since the beginning of 2019, you know we've been in our Church for Monday series basically since the beginning of the year. Uh, this is our last message uh, in our Church for Monday series. Uh, maybe if you're newer or you've missed a few of those Sundays, basically we have been talking about as a church, what does it look like to be a church and disciples who are ready to serve the Lord on Monday, to be disciples on Monday. And so we started off, if you remember, you know, these different, these uh, marks, these seven marks uh, of a growing disciple uh, who's ready for Monday. We started with, uh, we're ready to carry our cross on Monday, uh, to enter Jesus' yoke on Monday, to love his church to know his story, to love our neighbor both in what we do and in what we say. And today we're on our final mark, our final topic. And here's what it says in your, uh, your guidebook, if you have one of those. It says, a disciple ready for Monday works diligently for the flourishing of all. So our Mondays, you think about it, they are full of all kinds of things, uh, friends, family, relationships, uh, but it's also full of work, work. Working the job site, showing up at the office, attending class, managing the household, putting together that lesson plan, right? Your Monday by Monday, it's full of work. So far, you're, you're with me, I think, I hope. Uh, but here's what makes this topic difficult to talk about, I think. A couple of reasons. The first is, I think for many of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, we, we just don't really care about our work in, in that way all the time. If we're really honest with ourselves, kind of that... That thing we do on Monday, whether that's paid or unpaid, what we do with the majority of our time, uh, it's, some, it's, you know, especially for those of you who, where it is your primary compensation, right? It's like, this is something I get through. It's something I have to do. Uh, and it uh, gets me through to my vacation or my weekend. And uh, it's certainly not something I'm excited about. It's fine. It's okay. But it's not a calling. It's certainly not something I think about how God is using all, all the time. And for others of you, another reason is that your work, you don't necessarily think of it that way, but your work is just downright terrible. Uh, you have, you hate your job. You're, you, you have a difficult work environment. You have a bad boss, difficult colleagues, right? And the last thing you want is a sermon uh, from me about working hard for the flourishing of others. So I get it. I think we all come to this uh, what, whatever your work is, whether you're a student or a stay-at-home parent or you work at an office, right, we come to this whole work discussion uh, with a lot of baggage, and we all kind of struggle with it. And I know that we all struggle with it because you tell me. You know, it's funny, you'd think as a pastor, you know, if I asked you, what do you think most people come to a pastor to talk about, come to me to talk about uh, in their lives? And uh, you, you might say, oh, you know, marital struggle or, you know, questions of faith and doubt or uh, pain, right, loss, grief, and that's all true. But I kid you not, I mean, nine times out of ten, when I'm meeting with someone, whether they're new or they've been at church for a long time, inevitably the conversation will turn to work. 
and usually it turns to struggles at work, right? I, I, my boss is terrible, my work is frustrating, my work is hard, my team is in conflict, my paycheck isn't enough, my future is uncertain. What I do, I, I don't find purpose or meaning in it. I, I'm not sure what it's for. So I know that because you tell me. I know this is hard because you tell me. I also know because uh, I haven't always been a pastor. My hunch is there are some of you here who are thinking, what does this guy have to say about a real job anyway? I mean, his, <laughs> right, this, this is a guy who gets paid to, pr- to pray for his job, right? It's, it's, it's a weird job. It is. I'll admit it. It's a, it's a different job. Uh, but I wasn't always a pastor. Uh, I do know what it's like, in, in not every job, but to have, you know, that quote-unquote real job. Uh, many of you know this, but uh, my first job uh, was actually working uh, sales for a big retail company, uh, which is a really fancy way of saying that I worked the sales floor at, at Linens and Things. That was my very first job. <laughs> you guys want to hear something depressing? You cannot find a picture of Linens and Things on the internet without a going out of business sign. <laughs> Right, I looked. This is the best I could do. Right, it's funny if you've, I mean, some of you have never been in a lens and things because it's, it's been gone for a while. Uh, but, you know, you can picture me in the red apron. I totally wore that. Uh, I worked in the bedding department. Um, so if you ever have questions about thread count, don't, don't ever talk to me about that, actually. Don't ever come to me. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, you know, I bring it up. It's kind of funny. I, I know it's, it's, it's a funny first job. Uh, but honestly, I really mean this. It, it was the hardest job I ever had. It wasn't necessarily like the most challenging job I've ever had, but it was, it was the hardest for me personally. It was the hardest job I've ever had. I was not good at it. It did not feel like a good fit. My bosses were not supportive. My coworkers were not nice. Customers were impatient. The cash register was impossible for me. <laughs> And the pay was depressing. It was, it was really, really hard. I hated almost every day that I was there, truly. And if you had told me at that time, right, hey, Andrew, to be a disciple of Jesus means working diligently for the flourishing of all at linens and things, I would have probably punched you in the face. So I don't want to hear that. And that is honestly one of the bigger regrets, not the only regret, but one of the bigger regrets I have from my younger days, because now I know that as, as much as I struggled in that time, that time mattered very much to God. Okay, not to minimize my struggles, those were real, there were really hard things about that job, but when I look back on it now at the opportunities I wasted to grow, to love, to serve in the place God had me, as difficult as I felt it was at the time, uh, it makes me sad. I missed out. God took that time seriously. He did, and I did not. And maybe you're here and you can relate to that. You're in the midst of something right now uh, that you feel God's called you to on Monday, and it's like, I, this isn't what I want to do, God. This isn't where I'm happy, where I feel fulfilled. Okay. God takes that time seriously. So here's, what, here's the, kind of the big idea for today. Um, if we want to take Jesus seriously we have to take our work seriously. If we want to take Jesus seriously, following him, we have to take our calling to work seriously. It's not an obstacle to our discipleship or our faith or the good life. It is essential to those things. They go hand in hand by God's design. And we're going to talk more about that. But our work, what we do with the majority of our time, right, doesn't have to be a paid job, but our work matters deeply to God. It's serious business to him.
And we have to take it, we have to begin to take it seriously. And this is part of what Paul is doing. So we just heard Colossians read. It was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, in fact, if you brought your Bibles, turn there now. So we're in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be there for the morning. And remember, you know, we're kind of jumping into this book. Remember, Paul is talking to a group of new Christians in a Greco-Roman society. And many, you know, maybe you don't, I had to do some research on this. What is the work environment of the Greco-Roman society into which Paul's writing? What was their view of work? And you have to remember that Paul's writing into a culture, and these Christians are living in a culture that did not have enough work. It did not value most work, especially physical labor. That was just, the, that was not a, a prestigious work. And it did not really care about the well-being of most people. It cared about the well-being of some people, but not most people. And if you had a job in the Greco-Roman world, it's probably because you're poor. Because if you had the money, you, you, you wouldn't work. You would write, you would think, right? You, that's, this is the, the, the Greco-Roman philosopher, right? It was the highest kind of job. If you had a job, it's, usually it's because you're poor. And if you're really poor, you don't really matter. So Paul is having to remind these Christians that with Jesus, none of those things is true. Whatever their culture is telling them is not true. First, who they are matters. God loves them deeply. And by extension, what they do matters. And it still matters to us today in three ways. There's just three, three ways I want to point this out. Here, the first is, the first thing you see in Paul here is that your work is seen and delighted in by God. Your work is seen and delighted in by God, whatever it is. That's why Paul can say in Colossians 3, verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. And later he says, you are serving the Lord Christ in whatever you do. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, Paul is not making this up, right? He's drawing on a rich story of work that the whole Bible tells starting in the very beginning. So, if you know Genesis, you know God made uh, humans to cultivate the garden, to take the raw materials of the good world He created and to make it better for the flourishing of all, right? Think about it quickly. God could have made a world with cars and chairs and iPhones, right, and computers. He didn't do that. He left room for human cultivation in the way he created the world. We could do a whole sermon on that. We're not going to do that right now. But God, so essentially, God gave work as a gift. Work is a gift, and it's essential to who you are as a human being. Contribution to add to, make better his world. This is a part of what it means to be a human being in, this, in, in God's story. But you know that in, in Genesis chapter 3, work itself, among other things, is tarnished and broken by sin, which is why so many of us come into this room today and we do not experience our work as a gift at all. That may be the last word you would use to describe it, and that's real. Greg Forster, he's a scholar um, and theologian. Uh, he put, he, I love the way he put this. He says, uh, you were made to work, but not in these conditions. That's the human condition. You were made to work, but not in these conditions. And even if your particular condition is, is better than most of history and most of the world, which my hunch is for many of us in the room, that's true. That our work conditions are much, are much better much uh, than most of the world and for most of history. Even so, none of our work is ideal. There's always brokenness. 
There's corruption, there's unfairness, there's conflict, there's stress, there's worry, there's pressure in our work, and that is not the way it's supposed to be. Which makes what Paul says next, I think, so surprising. Uh, it's actually what he said before, because look at, who he's, look at who he's dignifying here. Look at who he's saying this to. This is back now in verse 22. He says, bond, he addresses them explicitly, bond servants or slaves maybe in your, depending on your translation. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Now, when you hear that word uh, slave, there's a reason the, some of your New Testaments translate it bondservant, because in English, the word slave, especially in, in, in America, uh, we think of chattel slavery uh, in the South, priests of a war. Um, and uh, most slaves, bondservants in the New Testament era were not treated nearly as badly um, as American slaves were. Some, actually, some were. There, there were. there are cases where uh, it, was, it was that bad, but for the most part, that wasn't true. But this, Paul is still talking to people who have the lowest of the low jobs. They are at the bottom of the social ladder. They have very little dignity from their culture, and they're very vulnerable in their culture, actually. And uh, certainly no one addresses slaves in a letter. If you were to look in, at a contemporary writing of Paul here in the Greco-Roman world, you will never see an author or thinker or politician address slaves. They're just not worth mentioning. You don't talk to them. You don't bring them up in a letter. But Paul does that because <laughs> Paul is saying God sees and delights in your work too. He says, don't do your work as eye service to man. Do it because it's worship to God. There's an incredible dignity in what he's saying. Even in a broken economic system, which this was, right? Even in a broken reality of work, God still sees and delights in what you do. Now, I hope that you find that encouraging today because I think this is one of those things that we, you know, we're here on a Sunday, especially at Christ Community, and you nod your head along, and then on Monday we dismiss it. We don't believe it because we don't really believe God sees what we do. Maybe that's you. It's like you don't believe anyone sees what you do, right? No one sees me changing this diaper for the thousandth time. No one cares about this spreadsheet that I'm making, right? No one, why am I reading this textbook? This is a waste of my time. Why am I doing this? Or we don't believe that what we do is valuable. Some of you work really thankless, hard jobs. I know you do. And it's like, I'm, I'm underpaid, I'm underappreciated. I don't have one of those jobs that our culture says is a sign of success or is contributing to the world. Or now you're retired, right? This growing population in the United States, you're retired and your culture is kind of telling you, hey, listen, your contribution, your opinion is done. Go right off into the sunset, but please don't come back and try to help us. And you're beginning to believe that. It's like, I guess that is what I'm supposed to do now. Okay. We think no one sees, we think no one cares. And, and what Paul is saying, what I'm trying to say is that's a lie. That's not true. Because even if no one else does, God says, I see and delight in you and your work. I see and I delight in you. This is an act of worship to him. And no job and no, no opinion, no label, no oppressive system, no cultural attitude can take that away from you because Jesus delights in what you do.
more than you can possibly imagine. He does. But Paul's not done here. The, uh, he addresses another group here. He speaks directly to masters, if you, if you see, and how they treat their slaves. This is chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And again, I just have to point this out to you. This is unheard of in the ancient world. No one told you how to treat your slaves. It didn't matter. You didn't talk to masters about how they treated these people. And if you were a master and you mistreated your slaves, there was absolutely no legal recourse they could take against you. It's your property, like legally. And so, uh, for Paul to do this, right, is, is incredibly different, unique, because this is a very vulnerable group of people. And Paul tells these Christian masters, he says, how you treat your employees matters to God. He's watching you too. And oh, by the way, Christian slave owner, you are a slave to Christ. You have a master in heaven. So watch how you treat them, because God is watching it too. To, to, I just want to make this point stronger to you. In, in another letter that Paul writes, actually it accompanied this letter to the Colossians that's going to the same faith communities, the letter of Philemon. Philemon was a Christian slave owner in this church. And his slave, Onesimus, had run away and found Paul and become a Christian. And Paul sent Onesimus and these two letters back to the church because Onesimus was a, 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 a fugitive, right? He's broken the law by running away. So he sends him back to Philemon, which is the law, and Paul does two things. First, he says, Philemon, I will cover whatever cost has incurred here. So Paul personally covers that cost. And he says to Philemon, and by the way, Onesimus is your equal in Christ. So whatever economic system you live in, Philemon, in Christ's eyes, that doesn't matter. He makes the same point in this letter of Colossians. He says, God shows no partiality right? Uh, God doesn't care about legal structures. He doesn't care about class. That doesn't matter. Everyone's work matters to him, regardless of those things. And everyone's status is equal before him. God says, I see the work of masters too, and I care, I care about that. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, okay? I understand that, but it's not too far off either, because we have employers in this room. Some of you have kind of formal employees, but we all probably work with people who kind of report to us or they are compensated by us. How, how do we treat them? How would those people talk about their Mondays under your care? What would they say? Are you treating their work with the dignity and respect that God treats it here as worship to Him, as an act of, of good? These kinds of questions, right, these are the kinds of questions we begin to ask ourselves when we actually believe God sees and delights in what I do. It reframes the conversation. What would you change if you believed that? Would you begin to take where God has you tomorrow as seriously as Jesus does? Would it, would it help you to see places of brokenness in, in where God's called you that you can begin addressing and make a better work environment for your colleagues or your employees or your, or your bosses? Would you begin to get a sense of his delight in what you do, even when you can't delight in it? And there are those moments. But can you sense his in what you do? God sees and delights in your work. Okay, second, second thing. Uh, as apprentices of Jesus, here's why we take our work seriously, is that we'll be, you will be rewarded for your work. That's another theme in this text. You'll be rewarded. Look again at verse 23. It says, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now, when most of us hear work and reward, we fill that gap with dollar signs, right? It's like, uh, my reward for work is payment. And that's really important. Compensation is really important uh, reality to our work. But as followers of Jesus, we actually have a different paradigm for the reward for the work that we do. Because if all work is worship to Jesus, and it's all a gift from Him, then our ultimate reward comes from Him, which means that He is actually our boss. God is actually our employer. That's why work matters, no matter whether you're paid or unpaid, you're a retiree, you're a stay-at-home parent, you're a volunteer with an organization, you're taking care of grandkids right now, you're doing chores at home. It all matters and is rewarded by God. And yes, that's dignifying. We kind of already talked about that, but it also raises the bar of what we do. If the master of the universe is actually who we report to, then doing good work really, really matters. Whether that's serving a customer or treating a patient or you're doing your homework or you're writing a sermon, you're doing laundry, all of it should be done with an excellence that reflects who God is, right? God doesn't cut corners in His work. God doesn't get lazy and selfish in His work. So part of being a follower of Jesus is striving to, to reflect Him in how we do our work, the quality of our work. And that's why Dorothy Sayers, she's so right. She was a, a scholar and a teacher, kind of a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, if you're familiar with him. And she wrote many essays. One of them is called Creed and Chaos, Creed or Chaos. And she says this, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and not disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. That's spot on. If we're rewarded by God, compensated by Him, then He deserves our very best. And God will reward us right, in the kingdom to come in ways that I can't even imagine. So much more than a paycheck. It's like Paul's saying, you have eternal back pay coming when you do your work in Christ as worship to Him. But not to, I, it's not just a future thing, you guys. This is a reward that we experience in life now. You know, the greatest gift that God gives to us, besides the unconditional love of Jesus, think about it this way, the greatest gift He gives us is to make us into glorious people who are not just saved by Jesus, but who are becoming more like Him. That is a gift. Because Jesus models to us the good life, what life can be when it is lived fully devoted to God and His design for life. And one of the primary places that God shapes you into that person, believe it or not, is in your work. It's one of the primary places this happens. Those 40 hours a week or more are not throwaway hours. And they are so much, they are, they are so much more than a means to an end. They are actually one of God's most effective tools to teach you the life you were designed to live. Think about it. The work is where you practice. Other than probably your home, work is where you practice patience and gentleness more than anywhere else. It's where you experience joy and hardship. It's where you practice self-control with that person in that meeting that you maybe some of you are thinking about right now. It's where you serve other people most tangibly in your day. It's where you're generous with customers and clients and coworkers. It's work. 
And the reward is incredible when we allow God to actually work on us in those spaces. Paul, let me put it to you this way. In another letter in Galatians, Paul talks, there's a lot of ways you can talk about Christian character. Paul gives one of the more famous metaphors. He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. If you've heard of that before. He says that part of being a Christian is growing in the fruit of the Spirit, becoming more like Jesus. And here's what he describes are the few, uh, is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Right, that's the kind of person God is making you to be. Now think of what a gift it truly is to become more and more that kind of person. Not just in your own life, but what a gift that is to your employee, your boss, your workplace. Right? We don't think of the fruit of the Spirit in the context of Monday, of work life, right? But if you're, so you're a boss, you're hiring someone, and you say, hey, tell me more about her. And this person says, well, she's loving, joyous, patient, kind, gentle, self-controlled. You're going to hire that person. This is, this is, this is who we all want to work with. This, this makes every organization better. This is the kind of person we want. That's a gift. Every moment God gives us in our work is one to become more like Jesus and experience this good life that he has for us. I used this in the first sermon we did in this series, but I think it's worth using again. It's from Tish Warren who wrote an incredible book called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. She puts it this way. She says, The new life into which we are baptized is lived out in days, hours, and minutes. God is forming us into a new people, and the place of that formation is in the small moments of today. We tend to want a Christian life with the dull bits cut out. Yet God made us to spend our days in rest, work, and play, taking care of our bodies, our families, our neighborhoods, our homes. What if all these boring parts matter to God? What if days passed in ways that feel small and insignificant to us are weighty with meaning and part of the abundant life God has for us? How much, how many of those small moments, insignificant moments happen at work? How much abundant life are you receiving or rejecting in the midst of your nine to five? Our work is rewarded in ways I think sometimes we hardly notice throughout the day. We have to take that reward seriously as followers of Jesus as a part of our work. Okay, last thing. Your work is seen and delighted and your work is a reward. Last thing. Your work is so much bigger than you. It's so much bigger than you. I think one of the most dangerous lies we believe about work today is that it is mostly about me. Work is about me. It's about my passion, my fulfillment, my comfort, my betterment. And maybe this is just me, you guys, but think back to your high school or, or college graduation speech, right? The commencement speech. It was, it was about find what you love and go do it. And here's why I, I, I don't believe that line anymore. Here's why. First, let's be really honest. That is really only possible for, ex for the extremely privileged and wealthy. That's, that's a bit of a, a, it's a bit of a privilege, right? To ask, what do I want to do? Instead of, what can I do? For most of history and most of the world today, that's simply not a relevant question, right? Work is about what am I able to do to provide for, my, for myself and my family? What opportunities do I actually have, right? To, to take care of them, my first responsibility. 
Second thing, so right, it's, 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 not, it's not great advice for everyone. It's also unrealistic for, for, uh, for anyone, I think. Not, not everybody can do what they love. You know, some of, some of you have, have really found that niche. That's great. That's a gift. But some jobs just need doing, and no one's going to love it right away. That's just true. How many lives have been ruined by that phrase, find your passion? And then they, you know, 10 years later, they figured out I couldn't actually monetize playing video games, the thing I like to do, right? It just didn't, it was, it's not realistic. It wasn't the right starting place. And third, probably most importantly, if, if that truly is our question that drives us into work, right? What do I want to do? It is a completely self-centered starting point. And if that is the framework that continues to guide you in your work, right? What do, I, what do I find fulfilling? What am I passionate about? It will ruin your life. And you, it'll ruin company. I mean, some of you have worked in places where leaders bounce when things get hard because it's all about them. It's not about the mission. It's not about the organization. It's not about the school. It's not about the students. It's about where am I comfortable? That's not, no one, that's not flourishing. That's not good. At best, that kind of thinking is a distraction, where should I be? At worst, it, it, I've seen it lead to massive career changes for someone who's looking for something that they actually already have, which is purpose. You already have that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you already have purpose in your life. You don't need a job description for that. You already have it. Now, this is, <laughs> this is Paul's point. It's implied, right? It's written to a different economy, but it's, it's here. It's that not every job is fun or adventurous or a perfect fit for you, but in God's economy, it has eternal purpose. Even what we think is the most, quote-unquote, mundane, boring, meaningless work, it has purpose, and it's so much bigger than just us. And this is more implied here in Paul than... than in Paul, he doesn't spell this out, but the purpose of our work, besides worship and glory to God, which is more explicit here, is love and service of neighbor. In God's economy, the purpose of your work is first as worship to God, and then love of neighbor, the great commandment, right? Love God, love your neighbor. And God, listen, God may want your work. God created a world where it was possible because He wants it, but your neighbor needs it. Your neighbor needs your work. It's how you serve them. I, and let me, rather than describe this to you, I experienced this really personally recently. Um, <clears throat> at the beginning of the year, uh, my wife Rebecca and I, we were out in California for Christmas, and we came back on New Year's Day, and I pulled into the garage and, and realized that our home had been broken into while, while we were gone. Uh, we are, we're fine you know, calm down. Uh, we're, we're okay. Uh, but, but honestly, that day, we were not okay. We were not okay. And it was one of the most sickening, gross feelings I've ever had. It, for anyone in the room who's had their home broken into, it is a terrible, terrible feeling. I didn't sleep, certainly not that first night, but I don't think I slept for several nights, just worrying, how am I going to help my family through this? How are we going to be okay? How are we going to be safe? I remember that first night praying, um, God, I need, I need your help. I don't even know where to begin. I don't know what to do. And here's how God answered me. 
He sent me an insurance agent that walked me through everything I needed to do to be made whole again. I had no idea how to do that. He sent me a real estate agent who is a part of our church and a friend of mine who, who connected me to a contractor uh, who knew how to assess the damage and, and, and help me fix it because I don't know how to fix stuff. And he did that for free. He sent me uh, a neighbor, stay-at-home mom, who also attends here to watch my kiddos so that they don't have to see mom and dad stressed out while we're on the phone all day trying to figure all this out. And he sent me a police officer who also attends here who came to my home after his shift late at night just to bring me a copy of a police report that I needed for insurance and to make sure I was okay and that my family was safe. And I am so glad, I am so glad that none of those people thought that their job was too boring, too mundane, that God could never possibly use them in a significant way. I'm glad for, my, for me and my family that they had a vision for work that was bigger than their own self-fulfillment. Because over the next few weeks, they were really hard. They, those people changed everything for me. And I wanted to share this because for so many of you, I know this, this is really hard for you to believe. It's really hard for you to say, yeah, God can use me to change the world. And I know that because we've done some survey work around this in the last year or so. And here's what we found. This probably won't surprise you. Uh, we found that here at Christ Community, if I ask you, does your work matter, you answer the question right. Yes, right? It's the multiple choice. True or false? True. And, we, you know, certainly that makes sense. We've been drilling that into you for a decade now. So hopefully you know that, right? But the second question, the written, the written test. Okay, now tell me how your work matters. Not just work, your, what you are called to do, where God has you tomorrow. Tell me how that matters to God. That was much harder for people to answer. Because that's, right? It's, some of us, just, we don't have the imagination for how God might do that. We haven't seen it play out. We haven't thought about it that way. And this is part of the reason why you guys, in, in your, if you're in a community group, part of what you guys are doing or starting to do is to actually do kind of a this time tomorrow interview, ready for Monday moment, in your group. So that you begin to get an imagination, how does God look at what I do? Where is God calling me to focus right now? And your group has an opportunity to say, here's what we see God doing in and through you that you maybe don't see. It's why we made these videos uh, throughout the series, if you were here for all three of them. One about Phyllis Bergman from our downtown campus. The quadruplets, you remember that story? Uh, the apartment complex that we showed during the series. We do those stories so that we see and remember together that a woman who cannot walk and a sonogram tech and two completely overwhelmed parents and a property manager uh, out in Shawnee Mission Lenexa can be used by God to bring a kingdom reality to bear on a hurting world. That's why we tell those stories. Because in the most surprising ways, God reminds us that our work can help people flourish in ways that we cannot fathom. But he does. Every day, he does. And I want to tell you just one more story. Mitch Holtis, if you're from Kansas City, you know that name. He's the voice of the chiefs on the radio. If you've ever driven home, on a Sunday afternoon and listen to a game, uh, you're listening to Mitch Holtz's voice. He's a part of the Christ Community family. Uh, he attends our, our Shawnee Mission campus. Um, he is one of the kindest 
people I know. If you know him, he is a really gentle, kind person. But just like everybody else, he daily wrestles with the question, does what I do matter? Does it really matter? Can God possibly use this thing that I call my job? And God answered that in a really incredible way. He, he, Mitch actually sent us this video. It's by the NFL Network. And it highlights a couple things. It's about a little company here in Kansas City that, that, that specializes in hiring the visually impaired, which is really cool. And how Mitch makes the blind see. So take a look. I can see light and I can see vague shadows. But other than that, I can't see you. I can't see anything on a TV at all. Thank you for calling Missouri ePay. My name is Cameron. How can I help you? So for all intents and purposes, I am completely blind. Okay, thank you so much. It's always been that way. I was born blind. I guess I don't really think about what I see. It's more along the lines of what I hear. Good afternoon, Alpha Point. It's great to be back. It's fantastic how we see the heroes that live in the Chiefs' kingdom and for them to be honored. And that's why we're here, because this week, on Sunday night, to throw out the first pass, it's one of your own, Cameron Black, is our Chiefs' kingdom The reason that we moved to Kansas City was that we found out that we were tremendously blessed and, and my wife had become pregnant. A is for Arrowhead. That's where we play. We were both incredibly excited, but I was petrified because I knew that I needed to work. What does that mean? Look at him. He's always wanted to take care of his family and um, he knew that if we moved to Kansas City, there would be work opportunities. I was aware of Alpha Point. I was aware that they were one of the largest employers of visually impaired people in the country. So we took that gamble that Alpha Point would give me a job. My name is Cameron. How can I help you? There weren't a lot of options otherwise for us as a family. Moving to Kansas City, I wanted to fit in a little bit. And I knew that the common spoken language around here was going to be Chiefs football and I wanted to learn how to speak that language. So I turned the radio broadcast on, and there was Mitch. Mitch Holtz back at Arrowhead Stadium. An incredible day for this game between the Chiefs and the Broncos. I have never been to a Chiefs game. I have wanted to go since we moved here, but when I listen to Mitch, I can see it all. Wide open left side, Travis Kelsey at the 20, 15, 10. They're not going to catch it. It's going to be touchdown. Kansas City. And the Chiefs the end zone. My dad provided the knowledge of football and Mitch Holtis provided the passion and the addiction. It was a December evening. I'm ready to go. It's the Chiefs and the Dolphins the next day. And then somebody sent me a video that was done about Cameron Black. When I was listening to Mitch Holtis describe the games, I was floored at how much I could follow it. And something I had thought beyond my realm of understanding was just right there. It stopped me in my tracks, and I was choking back tears setting in my living room. People like Cameron who are blind, I wanted to experience what they feel, what that does to your mind, your body, and your soul. All right, Mitch, it's Cameron. I'm to your right. 
Sit down at this table here. There's a chair right across from me. There you go. go. You're good as gold. All right. I'm just going to have you uh, make us a little lunch. When you do a radio broadcast, it's the theater of the mind. To the left of the sink, you should find all the makings of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Peanut butter. That's OK. Here's our bread. Uh-oh. Lost my cane. It's my job to perform on that theater so that that game becomes something he'll never forget. Cameron, welcome to Arrowhead Stadium for your first time. You can feel the cool night air of a Sunday night football game at the 39th parallel. You hear the sounds of the fans. They want to feel the presence like you are of your heroes. You know, for years, I've often thought of the folks who were listening that had no chance to watch the game. Now I think of the people who do not have the ability to ever see a game. That was the pass. Tell me truly. You're golden. It was good. When I first heard you broadcasting, you gave me the ability to see something that I thought I would never be able to experience in my life. Snap back to Mahomes. Mahomes throwing near side. And I use the word see deliberately. Touchdown, Kansas City! Cameron, I couldn't be more proud of you. The way you have overcome obstacles in your life, the way you love your family, the way you are at Alpha Point. You will all be with him on that field Sunday night. You are loved there. You're representing all of them. So enjoy this experience. You deserve it, my friend. So here's, here's what I want to do. This is, this, is, this is the close of the sermon. It's the close of the series as well. If you've been around at Christ Community, you know we often end our services with what we call a This Time Tomorrow interview. We, we call someone up uh, who's a part of our church family, and we say, how is God using you tomorrow? What will you be doing this time tomorrow? And what I thought we would do is end with all of us. So what I want you to do right now is picture you're up here with me every one of you. And I want you to spend some time thinking and reflecting on what is God doing with your life tomorrow? Where is he using you? And so what I want us to do is if you would just close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm going to, I've adapted these questions. I'm going to read them to you. And let's listen. Let's listen to what God might say. So again, close your eyes, bow your heads. Picture what you'll be doing this time tomorrow. How do you see it? How does God see it? And what is he saying to you about it? Where do you encounter brokenness on Monday? And where do you sense God's work of redemption? Where do you sense He's calling you to work with Him?
Where do you sense God's invitation to rest on Monday? Where do you sense his delight and his love in what you do? pray together. Father, forgive us for the ways we have made our work about us or have contributed to the brokenness of our world. Would you please use our work to shape us? Help us to look more like Jesus, even if it really hurts. Please do. And Father, give us glimpses and signs of how our work serves you and loves others tomorrow. Give us an imagination for the impact that we can have by the power of your spirit. And in your mercy and in your power and in your grace, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands.